Well, we're looking at Ecclesiastes and the author's investigation of life under the sun, when this life is all there is. And where can you find the answers to the most difficult questions of life if there is no God and no eternity? And in today's passage, the preacher, as he calls himself, takes a look at the winners and the losers in life. Because if there is no God, how do you handle the fact that some people, like the rich or the influential, they seem to win at life while others lose and they face injustice and oppression? How do you handle the heartbreaking implications of suffering in a world where God has been erased? First point the problem of injustice. On top of the dome of the Old Bailey, the UK's Central Criminal Court, is a statue of Lady Justice. And in her left hand, she holds a set of scales to weigh the evidence fairly. And in her right hand is a sword, the authority to deliver a verdict and punish the guilty. And of course, elsewhere, Lady Justice is depicted with a blindfold because justice should be blind. It shouldn't be swayed by the position or the wealth of the accused. But what if the legal system wasn't blind? What if the blindfold were lifted? What if the state or those in power, those with power, had their finger on those scales? What if some, like the rich or the well-connected or even just the majority, could get justice or get away with it, but others got no such thing? Because that is the scenario that the preacher wants you to consider. Chapter 3, verse 16. I saw under the sun that in the place of justice, even there was wickedness. I saw, because that is a reality of life for so many, isn't it? And not just in the courts of law. Think of unjust suffering generally. Economies are ruined, jobs are destroyed, and people starve while rulers live lavishly. Families are broken by alcohol or drug use while the people who sell them that stuff prosper. How are you supposed to make sense of that if there is no God? Chapter 4, verse 1. Again I saw all the oppressions that are done under the sun, and behold the tears of the oppressed, and they had no one to comfort them. You see, if there is no God, how can you comfort the sufferer? You see, you might think that unjust suffering is a problem for faith, not atheism. But the preacher says, oh no, because in a secular materialistic world where there's no ultimate point to life, there's no ultimate point to suffering. There's no higher meaning to suffering. So you can never comfort the sufferer. Life's just random chance. 
So all you can do in the face of suffering is harden your heart to suffering and try and tough it out. But what kind of comfort is that? Especially for those whose ability to tough it out has been broken. Or you could take the path of Eastern mysticism and pretend suffering isn't real. But if I were to walk onto the children's cancer ward and tell the parents, your child's leukemia, it's just an illusion. It's not really real because this life isn't really real. Would they thank me? Would they say, that was so comforting. Would you please come again and visit us once more? Or you could take the moralist's approach and say, the people who suffer, actually, they deserve it. This is karma. Which, of course, is very convenient when it's someone else who's suffering. But what happens when it's your turn? In a nihilistic world where there is no God and no eternity, there's no point to life. And so there's no comfort to be had in life, the preacher says, especially when suffering and unjust suffering come knocking. But that's not the only problem with a secular worldview, is it? Because it can never end oppression, can it? You see, if there is no God and no final judgment, what should the oppressed do? Get their justice now. Do to their oppressors what their oppressors have done to them. Get your vengeance in this life because this life is all there is. It's why the French Revolution ended in the terror. No God, no final judgment. So we've got to be the judges. We've got to make them pay now. And the cycle of violence just keeps on rolling. And if that's really what the world is like, then the preacher's dark verdict is, you are better off dead. Verse 2. And I thought the dead who are already dead more fortunate than the living who are still alive. Or better still, who have never been born, because at least then you don't have to experience the pointlessness of suffering. As he said before, total ignorance would be better than facing the facts of such an under-the-sun worldview. But the preacher's point is not that you should consider suicide. He wants you to take a step back and ask, but where do I get this sense of justice and right and wrong from? Because if the world really is meaningless, there can be no ultimates. So who is to say that anything is just or unjust, right or wrong? But you know that justice and right and wrong are real. But a secular worldview can never tell you why they're real. But the preacher can. Verse 17. I said in my heart, God will judge the righteous and the wicked. For there is a time for every matter 
and for every work. So what makes most sense of your belief in justice? That there is no ultimate judge or that there is and one day he will call all to judgment. And if a secular approach to life can never give you a meaning for suffering, what if God could? What if he can see a purpose to it that you can't? And what if one purpose were to teach us? Verse 18, I said in my heart with regard to the children of man that God is testing them that they may see that they themselves are beasts. In other words, the injustices that we witness in the world should make us examine ourselves. You see, we think that unjust suffering is a test of God. How could he let this happen if he really existed? But the preacher says, no, unjust suffering is a test for us. Because what does injustice and oppression say of the human heart? That man, left to himself, without God, is no better than the animals who kill and devour each other. And the law of the jungle rules, and life really is the survival of the fittest. And of course, scientific materialism says the idea that you are made in the image of God, that there's something unique about you, that's the stuff of fairy tales. You really are just an animal. But if that's true, why not live like it's true? If, as the preacher says, verse 20, all go to one place, humans and animals alike, all are from the dust, and to dust all return. Why not live out the reality of the survival of the fittest? Why care for the poor, or the suffering, or the rights of minorities? If that's true, what finger can you point at Nazi Germany, or Stalin's Russia, or Pol Pot's Cambodia? They're just living true to the worldview. It's you who are being forced to it, because deep down, you know it's false. And yet the preacher goes further, because he tells us why oppression happens. Second point then, the roots of injustice. And the first root is power, chapter four, verse one. On the side of their oppressors, there was power. You see, in a dog-eat-dog -dog world where we really are just animals, life is competitive and ultimately everything eventually comes down to power. And those who have it can impose themselves on those who don't. But what drives the desire for power? Well, that's the second route and it's envy. Verse 4, then I saw that all toil and all skill in work come from a man's envy of his neighbour. This also is vanity. 
So the preacher is saying that behind so much of our striving to get ahead, to be the one at the head of the pack, the one who is calling the shots, the one who's influencing others, behind all of that is envy. You know, last week the BBC ran an article, why do we buy into the cult of overwork? And the reason it said is that we think that overworking puts us on the path to success, that our work worship, as it calls it, promises us what we want. That, I quote the article, as long as we glamorize money, status and achievement, there will always be people who work hard to get them. And the author quotes Gordon Gecko, the character played by Michael Douglas in the 1987 movie Wall Street. The point is, ladies and gentlemen, that greed, for lack of a better word, is good. Greed is right. Greed works. Greed clarifies, cuts through and captures the essence of the evolutionary spirit. Greed in all of its forms, greed for life, for money, for love, knowledge, has marked the upward surge in mankind. Exactly, the preacher would say, because if greed is this inordinate longing for something like wealth or love or knowledge, envy wants it because the other person has it and it won't be happy until it has more of it than the other person. And we envy someone's life or parts of their lives, their influence, their learning, their soft power, their relationships, maybe even their body. As Harold Coffin said, envy is counting the other fellow's blessing instead of your own. And it won't be happy until it's got what they have and more of it than they have. Because envy wants to be first. It wants to be the one shining brightest, the one who everyone else looks up to. And it is that desire to be at the top that is at the bottom of so much of the injustice and oppression that we see, the preacher says. But if you think about it, the secular materialistic worldview can't give you anything else, can it? Because you're an animal and this is the evolutionary spirit. This is the upward surge in an under the sun world this is what enables you to get ahead. The problem is, the endless pursuit of more never satisfies, does it? David Foster Wallace, the author and atheist said, pretty much anything else you worship will eat you alive. If you worship money and things, if they are where you tap real meaning in life, then you will never have enough Never feel you have enough. Sure, says the preacher, verse 7, his eyes are never satisfied with riches. Enough is never enough. 
So envy can never satisfy you. Plus, envy isolates you because you can never be happy when someone else is succeeding and you struggle to smile or clap at their success. It's the third root of injustice that the preacher identifies. Isolated individualism. And he gives us two case studies. In verse 8, it's a man driven by work who has no other, either son or brother. He's devoid of community. And yet he never asks, for whom am I toiling and depriving myself? He's entirely self-absorbed in his own self-advancement. He has no one to share life with. You see, if we really are just animals, then it's not just that you've got to keep up with the Joneses, you've got to get past them and, if necessary, trample over them to do it. And so in your desire for self-advancement, you've simply added to the injustice and oppression of the world. And the preacher's judgment, verse 8, this also is vanity. It's hevel, smoke. You may end up incredibly rich, but in reality be incredibly poor. You can have everything and yet have nothing. Then in verse 13, it's the case of an old and foolish king who no longer knew how to take advice. So he too is isolated. He's at the top, but there's only room for one at the top. And he's become an echo chamber of one until a young contender arises and takes the throne. And now everyone flocks to him. Verse 16, there was no end of all the people, all of whom he, the new guy, led. Yet those who come later will not rejoice in him. And the people desert him, the new guy, like they did the previous king. In other words, you just have to hang around long enough to discover that success and popularity, getting to the top of the tree, doesn't last. Verse 16, surely this also is vanity. Okay, but if the desire for power and the envy that drives it and the individualism it creates are a cause for so much oppression, what's the answer? Well, the preacher starts with a false one. Verse 5. The fool folds his hands and eats his own flesh. You see, you could look at the brokenness of the world and the greed and the envy and the personality politics that's behind it and think, I want nothing to do with this. And you check out of the rat race and you go live in a beachside villa or a van and you look on critically at the rats still running. The problem is, 
that's just another display of indifference to suffering that marks the materialistic worldview, isn't it? Because it doesn't care enough to do anything about it. And the preacher says, it is also self-destructive. You may not be consuming others, but you end up consuming yourself. Your ability to care, your sense of priorities, they all get eaten away, even eventually your self-respect. Because since when has deliberately underachieving been a virtue? So if withdrawing isn't the answer, what is? Well, before he takes us there, the preacher gives us two clues. Firstly, verse 6, better is a handful of quietness than two hands full of toil and a striving after the wind. So instead of folding your hands in indifference, and instead of using two hands to grab as much as you can with, take with one hand, live modestly, and that'll leave the other hand free to give and to serve. Discover the inner rest and the quietness of soul that comes with contentment, that's neither checked out nor driven by the need to outdo others. Take joy in the present rather than always wishing that you were somewhere else doing something else with someone else. That's the first clue, quietness. But the second is community. Because if, as the preacher says in verse four, envy of neighbor creates individualism, how about cultivating a love for your neighbor instead? Verse nine. Two are better than one because they have a good reward for their toil. Because when, like in verse 10, mishap happens and you fall in a hole, your friend can help you back up. Or verse 11, when adversity comes and you're facing one of life's cold nights, your friend will be there to help keep you warm. Or verse 12, when you get attacked, your friend will have your back. There's safety in numbers, isn't there? It's why if you're a parent, you're happy for your kids to go out provided they stick together. It's why at my college, we had a parenting system and older students like Sue would act as college mothers and adopt younger students like me and look out for them. In fact, it worked so well, I ended up marrying my mother. I must be the only pastor who can make that claim. And the preacher's point is, winning in the dog-eat-dog -dog world may seem attractive, but it leaves you isolated and vulnerable in a way that having community around you doesn't. Because if two are better than one, three is even better, verse 12. A threefold cord is not quickly broken. The question is though, how are you going to find that inner quietness and that community? Because if work or wealth or anything else that you worship will eat you and those around you alive, 
you're going to have to change what you worship, aren't you? And change it for something that'll leave you loving your neighbour, not envying or oppressing them. Third and last point, the answer to injustice. Winston Churchill was once asked, are you ready to meet your maker? To which Churchill replied, I am. Whether my maker is ready to meet me is another matter. It's a great line, isn't it? Except Churchill falls into the trap that many fall into of thinking that God is your equal. Chapter five, verses one and two. Guard your steps when you go to the house of God. To draw near to listen is better than to offer the sacrifice of fools. Be not rash with your mouth, nor let your heart be hasty to utter a word before God. For God is in heaven and you are on earth. Therefore, let your words be few. You see, if power and envy and individualism result in injustice, they can also leave us thinking that we're God, that the world should revolve around us. And that will inevitably influence the way you think of and speak to God. Because the envious person who thinks that life isn't giving them what they want, what they deserve, will speak to God out of their resentment and their bitterness, while the person who thinks that they've made it to the top will speak to God, if they speak to him at all, out of their pride. Both forget that God is in heaven and we're not. One commentary I read this week quotes Lisa Simpson as saying, Better to remain silent and be thought a fool than to open your mouth and remove all doubt. Yes, the preacher would say, approach God to listen, not just talk. Remember his infinite greatness and our smallness. Remember his great wisdom and our lack of it. Because, verse 7, God is the one you must fear. Or as the writer to the Hebrews puts it, let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. But how are you supposed to approach such a God at all? A God who is so holy, so different from us that he's described as a fire that burns up everything before it. And when you know that you are guilty of envy and individualism and walking over others to get what you want, how can you stand in front of such a God that the preacher describes as the judge of all the earth and listen to him? How can you ever know that quietness of heart that the preacher says that you need in the presence of such a God? Aren't you always going to be dealing with the noise of your heart condemning you? Well, John opens his gospel by telling us, In the beginning was the Word, 
and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And Jesus is the ultimate word of God that we are to listen to. And Jesus said, be on your guard against envy, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And Jesus didn't just teach that, he modelled it, he never envied. Because of all people, Jesus had reason to think that he was not getting the life he deserved. But instead of walking over others to get what he wanted, instead of using his power to get more power or abuse people, he used it to serve people and to restore the broken and the abused. And at his trial, he faced the injustice of a legal system that was tipped against him. And he was left isolated and alone, but not because of his sin, but because of his friend's cowardice. And at the cross, he gave up power. He became the ultimate innocent sufferer. He took the burning fire of God's wrath at sin so that we might be spared it. He became the guilty that we might become the innocent. He took upon himself the life he never deserved so that we could have the life we never deserve. A life of being loved and accepted by a God so holy but who we can now call Father. The cross is the very opposite of envy. And when you see Jesus experiencing unjust suffering for you, when you see in him the friend, the companion, who picks you up when you fall, who stands with you in adversity, who defends you from your enemies, and you don't have to do anything to earn it, it is all of his grace, then you know that you are loved and you'll worship him and your soul can begin to rest because you can stop trying to prove yourself and you can begin to discover that handful of quietness that the preacher's talking about. And with it, you will find a love for your neighbour that means that you can build thick community around you. Because when you know that you are loved in the highest court in the cosmos, you can begin to love and do good to others rather than trample on them. You can give your life in service of others as Christ gave his life in service of you.